what we have in the U.S. is they average all the scores of all the students who do the test. When you disaggregate that and you look at the kids who are going to the top private schools or the, the top public, public schools and then the great charter school experiences, those kids are on par with the first, second, or third countries in the world. But what's dragging down that number is all the public school kids who are going to more challenged schools and don't have access to resources. And that's a political economic problem that we should solve in this country. Welcome to Learning Unboxed, a conversation about teaching, learning, and the future of work. This is Annalise Corbin, Chief Goddess of the Past Foundation and your host. We hear frequently that the global education system is broken. In fact, we spend billions of dollars trying to fix something that's actually not broken at all, but rather irrelevant. It's obsolete. A hundred years ago, it functioned fine. So let's talk about how we reimagine, rethink, and redesign our educational system. So welcome to today's episode of Learning Unboxed. And I am, as always, super, super excited because today I get to have one of my favorite people in town um, and an awesome guest because we're going to have a fabulous conversation talking about how we effectively as a community create STEM pipelines for our local business and industry and how we make sure that all that effort spreads well beyond ourselves and our own organizations. And so joining us today is Dr. Frederick Bertley, who is the president and CEO of the Center of Science and Industry, or COSI, as we uh, colloquially call it. And so, Frederick, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me here, Annalise. It's a pleasure to be on. I can't wait to dive into this talk. Well, so me too. And I've been super excited about the fact that, you know, we were going to get to have this conversation today. And I want to start with acknowledging the fact that we've got listeners who come to this program from all over the world who have no idea what the heck this COSI thing is. So let's start with a 100,000 foot view and really sort of put the work that COSI does into a global context for our listeners. Great. So for those who are outside of the central Ohio, Ohio region, Welcome. Again, I'm a proud participant in the Annalise um, incredible uh, program. Um, COSI, C-O-S-I stands, as you said, Annalise, for the Center of Science and Industry. It is a science museum, otherwise called the Science Center in some different countries outside of the U.S. And basically, they have a combination of on-site exhibits and experiences, come to the building, explore all things under the lens, steam, science, technology, engineering, arts, and math, to get you jazzed up about that. And then we have a suite of programs that are building independent that reach out in the community and online. Now, we were started in 1964. But if you really want to know how cool COSI is, in 2020 and in 2021, COSI was ranked the number one science museum in the country by USA Today. Now, I know you know what USA Today is, because that's a pretty popular newspaper mm -hmm. in this country. But yeah, we're basically a hands-on, fun science museum. We make science come alive. We pique your interest so that when you leave here, maybe you continue to explore this whole kind of lifelong learning arc around science, technology, engineering, math. And in the community of Central Ohio and Columbus in particular, we are insanely proud that um, that COSI is part of our community. And, and it was not a shock to any of us that it's the number one, you know, science center in the country, because of course it is. Um, it does amazing things. So let's dig in just a little bit to sort of the, the, the premise around 
you know, we, we could ask this question a number of different ways, right? So we could ask the question, Frederick, around sort of why does COSI exist, right? Or or we could ask the question around what is what is COSI's big contribution for the future going to be? And I realize that that's kind of a loaded question because I would argue, having spent so much time locally understanding and being sort of immersed with COSI being part of our ecosystem, I sort of understand that trajectory, but it's really, really difficult to put it into context if you don't have a science center and you don't understand the amazing potential that it has to influence a community. Well, look, those are two great questions, and they are not, they may be separate buckets, but they're definitely connected by Absolutely. two. The first one, why COSI exists in the first place? And secondly, what's the future for something like COSI? So the first question is very simple. Science has been traditionally, you know, at least in the 20th century and 21st century, done in these incubated, you know, mm-hmm. sterile places, right? You either do them in research centers or the hallowed halls of ivory towers. So whether you're in Ohio or 49 other states or around the world, the engine of scientific advancement happens in these research spaces. Well, the average person doesn't have access to those. You can't walk into the labs of Battelle. You can't walk into the labs of The Ohio State or Harvard, Yale or Selbon or University of Cairo. You can't walk into those research spaces. They just won't allow you. It's not, not be mean. They just won't allow you. So you Don't be messing with stuff. our experiments. That's right. So, so, so prior to Google and search engines, we'll come back to that digital space yeah. now. Prior to that, the only place you can find out stuff from science is if you read maybe Scientific American, a layman's journal. But if you've ever read Scientific American, which, by the way, is a phenomenal journal, it's still pretty darn technical. Like, there's a lot of scientists and you read some articles and the areas that I'm not an expert in, I got to reread and reread. So it's not like perfectly accessible to the general public. Then you had other magazines like Popular Mechanics and or you relied on television shows. And again, let's not talk about the digital world. Prior to this digital explosion, you know, you were limited with your TV shows on that, you know. And so where could you find out about science? Where could you experience science? God, Allah, Yahweh, or whatever your belief is, invented this thing called the museum. And there were <laughs> kinds of museums. And one of the kinds of museums was a science museum slash science center. And you'll notice, at least in America, actually in America and throughout some parts of Europe, the, the early science museums weren't called science museums. They were called centers of science and industry or science and industry or industry and science. Mm -hmm. And the reason why is they were, again, the whole thing of you can't get to science unless you're part of a research lab. Well, you also couldn't go to industry. You know, you wouldn't be able to go to Honda or Toyota or GM plants and walk in and see in details how they make the cars. So these things bubbled up called science museums or science centers that allowed the world to access this really cool stuff. And what distinguishes science museums and science centers from art museums, history museums, and other cultural centers is they want you to interact. You got to pull a lever, press a button, put your hand on that um, electrostatic generator. You know that silver ball when your hair stands up? Clearly it doesn't work for me anymore, but you, but you, you get the idea. Like that was a really fun distinguishing aspect of a science museum. And so in short, you know, from the late late 1800s through the early to mid 1900s, science museums, science centers were invented to allow the public to get access to this really cool stuff on the science and, and the industry kind of frontier. Fast forward to today to your second part of the question, which was, well, what's the future for science museums? Scary as heck, Annalise, that's the future. <laughs> and why? Because these devices, yep. right, have democratized access to information. Right. You can find anything you want on Google 
instantly. And in fact, that indelible experience that I told you about, that separated science centers from other museums, where you have a visceral response or some interactive response, well, you can get a $2 Google Cardboard, pop your phone in, download a free app, and now start even having virtual experiences that almost mimic the real thing. So the future of science centers, Annalise, in my opinion, slash Cosi's opinion, is it has to be more than bricks and motor. Mm -hmm. Gone are going to be the days where you pack your minivan, drive to a museum, in this case, a science museum, spend, you know, anywhere from 18 to 25 bucks per kiddo, per adult, food, parking. Next thing you know, you spent $250 for a three to five hour experience. You can get access to the world and a device for that or much less. And so the future of science museums in particular, where Google gives you all the information you want to know about coronavirus, faster than any science museum. Google gives you all the information on artificial intelligence. Google gives you all the information on GMOs. Google gives you all the information on climate science, you know, faster than we can do in a science museum. So the future of science museums, we got to wake up and be like, Mm -hmm. hey, we love our mothership experience. We do want you to come to our building. But here's what, in our case, here's what Costa is going to be independent of the bricks and motor. So here's what we're going to do in your community. And we have this expression here, Annalise, we're going to perform engage or you know inspire you where you live learn and lounge yeah and why do we want to do that because we know science is everywhere and for everyone so we're constantly iterating to think about how can we have these cool experiences around science curated by this cool place called cosi outside the building yeah absolutely and i and i and i i really truly appreciate frederick you know, you bringing up the the whole issue of Google and the 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 ease, if you will, of the ability to get to information, accurate or not, right? That's a whole another podcast. We're not even going to go there today. <laughs> but the reality of it is that that you know the world the world is a very very different place, and all places of brick and mortar, right, are are going to have to, you know, allow themselves to ideate, to innovate, to evolve, right? And, you know, that's one of the things that I love about you, Frederick, is that you are a thinker that's rooted in understanding where where we are, where we've been, but more importantly, you are not afraid to imagine where we could go. And I think that you know, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that some of that is steeped in the fact that you yourself are a scientist, right? So you have a deep um, and robust understanding of all the scientific process and the way that the mind engages in the act of curiosity, right? And we cannot underscore that because, you know, Google's awesome. You know, those mobile devices that we all now have, right? great in, in, in numerous ways. And although they can pique our curiosity, I would argue they cannot actually allow us to fully engage the potential of our now, curiosity. I, I love how you framed that uh, from one scientist to another. Um, you know, a few, a few, a few reactions. To that. I love how you frame that. First of all, if you have that curiosity background or that scientific mindset, whether you're a undergrad, master's, PhD mm-hmm. scientist or not, because everybody, frankly, is a scientist. That's how you learn mm-hmm. to walk as a baby. Exactly. And we all explore the environment, take data, process, make decisions, keep it moving, right? Fine. But if you have that slightly more robust scientific lens, that even allows you to use Google better. It does. Because you, the way you started off your point, you said, you know, and you're right, you need a whole other podcast on understanding <laughs> how to use Google, but that's exactly right. If you don't have a scientific mind, not that it's impossible, but if you don't question, mm-hmm. challenge, and analyze the data, 
you're not maximizing Google because you want to be able to search, validate, verify, test whatever information you're getting to know, oh, this is good. It's a web WebMD site. Maybe it's trusted. This is somebody else's site. Maybe it's not. And you can only do that by analyzing, questioning, collecting data, and forming informed um, decisions. So, so that's just on the Google digital front. But in general, industries need to adapt. I mean, you talked about adapt innovate and and evolve and you are spot on it is not just the science museum world it is not just the museum world look at what happened to newspapers and that whole industry mm -hmm. look what happened to blockbusters and that whole industry right look what's happening to to shopping at retail stores yeah. and that whole industry i mean everything is in a disrupt mode and the best way to navigate it is to be able to question challenge process and get to as best close to the truth or conclusion you can get. And what's that about? That's the scientific enterprise. Mm -hmm. And to your beautiful C word, a lot of that's based on curiosity. Yeah. You know, I can tell you real quick a story. How did I get to want to be excited and into science? True story. I don't know if I told you this before, but I had a video game. In fact, it's actually on my shelf, if you can see it behind there. That's a, a newer version to the one, not a newer version. Someone found that online for me and bought it for me because they know this story. So one of the first handheld video games was head-to-head ColecoVision football game. And I wanted to have it. I was nine years old. I wanted to have it. My parents are from the Caribbean, Annalise. If you know anything about Caribbean people, they're very, very strict, man. So <laughs> I was growing up in the household. I had a paper route. It was my paper route. My parents knew that. But they're like, son, you're putting every penny into the bank. So even though it was my paper route, I couldn't spend the money. I begged my parents. Please, all the kids at school were getting their game. Please let me buy this one game. They finally let me buy this game, Annalise. You know, took those square bolt, those square batteries, those nine volt batteries. Mm -hmm. And back then, games weren't, you know, you youngsters, any youngsters, you know, from 30 on below watching this, you guys are spoiled with the electronics. <laughs> right. So I had this game. The batteries were square. It shoots through these batteries. I couldn't afford to keep buying batteries. And I did what I thought was a smart idea. I went downstairs in the basement. I found an old lamp, Annalise, and cut off the cable. I opened the back of the video game. There's, you know, that thing that cuts on the batteries, the red and black wire. I attached the red and black wire. I plugged it into the wall. Oh, no. Best 10 seconds of my life. Annalise, I was playing. I, I remember it like it's today. I was like, I'm going to play before school. I'm going to play after school. It's never going to run out. By the 11th second, poof, the game exploded. The outlet was charred, and I was I was a combination of really sad because I obviously ruined my game. But then I hear my dad barreling down the stairs. Now we were raised in Canada. My dad had lost his West Indian accent. He only ever had it when he was upset, and he comes down the stairs like, "Son, what are you doing? You're trying to burn down the house." Um, but all truth told, my parents were really supportive, and so for me, what I learned was this thing called electricity that I took for granted for the first nine years of my life that you turn on a switch and, oh, it pairs, or you plug something out of it. It's way more magical. There's oh, something yeah. happening behind that wall. <laughs> and that was my hook on kind of curiosity to say, what is that? And that has been a steadfast rule that has led me through my life. You know, now I'm at COSI. I'm a president still, and I'm curious about, well, how do I make COSI go? Mm -hmm. How do I do right by this beloved institution that Central Ohio and all of Ohio loves and knows how do I ensure it goes to the next level? And so you're spot on. That curious mind, that scientific kind of, um, again, not you don't be a master's or a PhD scientist holder, but that kind of, you know, Socratic, ask a question, get information will guide you through anything you want to do in life.
Absolutely. And there's there's just nothing to be said for having the experience, right, of learning something yeah. and that experience sticking with you because every time you flip a light switch or you contemplate cutting a wire or hooking it to something else, Frederick, I promise you, you think about that moment, right? And All the time. Exactly, exactly. And so I think that that's a great segue for us because one of the things that you and I are both very passionate about, um, and I know we've talked about this numerous times before, and certainly it's reflective of the organizations that we lead, um, is the fact that, you know, how to not only foster all of that curiosity, but to get the experience and the opportunity of curiosity tied to true, deep, and meaningful learning into the hands of as many as possible, right? You know, that that giant, you know, how do we take and we ultimately make uh, STEM or STEAM or, or the opportunities tied to, to, to pure arts and learning um, in the hands of absolutely everybody. And one of the things, and I, as, as I segue this question for you, I'm going to set this up. Yeah. Um, so because you brought it up earlier, you know, you you held up your phone. I don't, I don't have mine with me. So hold your phone up here, Frederick. Grab that thing for everybody. There you go. So that thing. So why is it, right? And we had this moment as it relates to, I believe, this grand opportunity that has sort of come from where we are in our space in the world today is, you know, we spend a tremendous amount of time still within our K-12 or our primary education system, wherever you happen to be in the globe, teaching everything that thing already knows instead of teaching everything it doesn't know. And I would argue this is the space that we occupy and the opportunity for us to change the paradigm of what teaching and learning and the potential future of work and career, whether it be a STEM pipeline or others, happens to be for anybody. How do we ensure that the rest of the formal education world can learn this incredibly valuable lesson that I know that you and I innately just know because we live it? Look, I don't know if you set me up, but... (laughs) But what I'm about to say may upset many of your viewers and listeners. And that's we need to blow up the K through 12 <laughs> space. I'll just let's talk about it. Western society slash United States. America. Yeah. We can blow it up and start over. And what we start over with are with past foundation and past foundation like entities, um, informal science learning spaces. Um, by the way, this is not restricted to just science. Right, right? Like, absolutely. Like, so informal mm-hmm. learning spaces, period. Mm-hmm. And we need to reconstruct infrastructure that does exactly what you laid out, which is teach what you can't get through an instant search. And what exactly. you really, that, that's codification for, mm-hmm. you need to teach people how to think, mm-hmm. how to measure, how to analyze, how to problem solve. And and this is unfortunately the antithesis to that. It's a great library. I don't mm-hmm. want to poo-poo on the information that has inside it, but it dulls to your to your yeah. leading, it dulls our ability to either do it or ability to want to do it, right? We want things instantly anymore. We don't even want to challenge our brain most of the time. We hate it when there's a problem to be figured out. We just want the answer. And a lot of that has to do with, with this kind of taking over. So, you know. Um, uh, we can get deep into this, but but an honest recipe is, and if we don't like the terms blowing up, an honest recipe is a complete deconstruction, mm-hmm. disruption of the in general 
the general K through 12 landscape. Obviously, there's great programs like Ben's mm-hmm. schools at Pass Foundation and other schools in Ohio, outside of Ohio. But it's important to understand those are episodic. Exactly. You know, 95% of the American children are educated in public schools that are typical, antiquated, desks in rows. Somebody who's apparently older in front of the room knows some stuff, tells it to people, and now today asks people to just look it up and keep it moving. And, and it's not going to create that next ideal cohort of individuals that are going to solve our great challenges for this mm-hmm. country, right? Mm-hmm. Climate change, you know, food deserts, you know, um, um, home, you know, housing situations. I mean, all these things, there are great scientific answers for, but you need right-minded people to collectively almost crowdsource that information to move forward and create these protective spaces, feed our loved ones, provide the next set of healthcare, um, whether it's future vaccines or medicines, and um, just make sure we have food. Yeah, and yeah. actually in this country and not water. Right, right. Oh, absolutely, right. And I think that that really sort of brings us full circle to to the premise that we started the conversation with today around how do we think about STEM pipeline as it relates to business and industry? And we can't have that conversation without recognizing and understanding that we have to get people to actively engage in solving problems, right? And so, you know, it, from my perspective, you know, one of the great tragedies. Let me let me use that phrase. You may you may argue with me later, but I I do perceive it to be a great tragedy is that we believe for for a whole host of reasons that again, probably a whole nother podcast on this one too, right? <laughs> is that children are not capable of solving the world's greatest problems. And that we, Biggest we, we myth ever. oh my God, absolutely, Biggest right? Myth ever. Go absolutely. Ahead. There, there, there's no creature, no entity on this planet more creative than a child, right? And yet the system that we have of education in many ways, not always to your point, there are amazing examples out there that defy this. But but the reality is that many, many children are put through a very linear process of learning how to learn, which is not learning at all, right? It's often regurgitating. It's being frustrated. It's not equitable by any stretch of the imagination. It leaves a tremendous number of kids, families, and communities behind. And yet, Quite frankly, if we would just embrace the curiosity and the opportunity that when you you hand a, hand a kid, you know, a whole set of problems are, you know, think of a pile of Legos and you say, build me something that will do, mm-hmm. right? And yeah. what they come up with defies the imagination. And yet in the defying of the imagination is the grain of solution that will change the world. But that's not what we do. And so how do we reconcile the system that is and the need for this vast innovative STEM pipeline that quite frankly needs to move way faster than anything we've ever seen before? How do we ensure that business and industry is gonna be successful in a space that right now is not conducive to helping them get there? Well, look, again, spot on. I love these conversations. It's just a validation of each other over and over in terms of our thoughts. But <laughs> let, let's begin with the curiosity piece that you talked about. I mean, you nailed it, right? Kids are born. We talked about this earlier. That's how you learn to talk and walk. It's all the scientific exploration. Touch that warm stove. Oh, you never touch it again. You learn about it, right? And then what happens? We go to this thing called school. And then between, by the time we get to the third grade or fourth grade, they've beaten the curiosity out of us. Sometimes, literally, but without question, metaphorically, they've just pushed it out and they've got us in this rote, terrible system, right? Then you go through that, and then we get to the place where 
oh my gosh, I mean, now I've graduated from high school, I'm getting into college and the industry sector and looking for people to fill these great jobs, can't find them. We don't have people who are prepared, right? So we're going to come back to that because in this great country, we've figured it out. So I'm going to pose a question. I know you're asking me the questions, but I'm going to step this up and pose a question <laughs> back to you and you'll see where I'm going with this. But, but it's, it, it's fascinating. Think we're in Ohio. If I said to you, OH, what would you say? Well, I would not. You would I'm not. So, I would. Well, you know, I, I'm not. I'm not from here, but I will say this: I have embraced the culture of this place, and I love it. And so it takes all my control not to scream "IO" at you. Okay, good. So let me <laughs> different. You're right. That was a poor scene. You are such a good hostess. You know how to ask the questions. I'm learning. Me, this is a question I should have asked you. If you go outside where you are and wander the street and say "OH" out loud, what are you going to hear? I O. No matter I where o. you are in the world, and I have heard this. Every place in I've been in the world. In, in airports in Germany, you can say, oh, wait, and somebody, I know. You're like, what? No, absolutely. So for those of you who are not from Ohio, um, this is basically a reference to the great university, the Ohio State That's University, right. the largest university in this country, the Langer University, the phenomenal states, no question. But the real reason why they say OHIO isn't because of the academics of the institution. It grew out of this sport called football, mm -hmm. that the Ohio State Buckeyes is one of the greatest football teams year in, year out in college sports, right? Where am I going with this, enemies? Whether it's professional hockey, college hockey, professional basketball, college basketball, professional swimming, cross, gymnastics, football, soccer, what do we do with those sports? When, when does a college athlete get that scholarship? Right? Yeah, they're entering college. When were they recruiting? Yeah. yeah. Eight years old. And I'm not exaggerating. If you talk about baseball, football, basketball, yeah. um, and soccer, they were recruited as elementary kids mm -hmm. in different tracks. And they get looked at different, differently by different people. But it doesn't start when they're 18. When you talk about the best swimmers who are in the Olympics, going to Olympics this summer, they were swimming at three and four. Yeah. For sports analysts, we figured this out. Mm -hmm. You get them playing the violin. You don't start playing the violin at 20. You can, and because of the malleable brain, you'll learn how to play it. But the virtuosos will not. They start at three and four, and they're doing six hours a day violin. Yep. Right? Yep. So we figured this out with the sporting world and the entertainment world. We haven't applied it to education. The same way we recruit the best athletes, and what do we do? We wrap around resources for them, mm -hmm. the best coaches, the best equipment the best this. And then by the time they get to college, they're great men and women athletes and they go on some of them make a pro career. We don't do that with school. Mm -hmm. We don't recruit kids in STEM at the age of three or four and say, you know what, we're going to wrap you around experiences. You're going to go to Battelle. You're going to go to IBM. You're going to go to Facebook. You're going to learn. You're going to have digital interaction with all these great people. You're going to be doing hands-on research all the time. And by the way, you're going to be doing it with the same intensity that the swimmers do it, right? We do exactly. it for 35 minutes, 35 minutes of math class and woo, Jimmy is tired, right? Like, yeah. come on. And so we figured this answer out for the sport and entertainment world. We just need to recognize and appreciate the value of education with the same. I mean, let's not even get into what do we pay teachers versus what do we pay athletes. Right. Now, to be clear, all you podcast listeners, I love sports. I go all the time, <laughs> football, baseball, basketball, swimming. I'm a huge sports fan and I love sports. I'm not completely on sports. But, you know, if you can dribble a piece of leather up and down the court or throw a pigskin and you're getting paid $10 million a year, and yet you're a teacher in a classroom teaching our children who are going to become the next leaders, and you're getting thirty to 70000 a year, that's a troubled equation. 
We're showing the world what we value Mm -hmm. and more importantly, what we don't value. And if we're not valuing paying the men and women who are taking care of our children from roughly three to 18, Mm -hmm. then, you know, you're not going to get the same kind of, you know, support, energy, et cetera, that a past foundation might give the students you work with and a few of the great elite schools, but our mass is not there. So we know the answer. Mm -hmm. We just as a society need to pivot and take this education thing seriously. And then the other thing we talked about is the discrepancy between, you know, these are your words, these are my words, but certainly all education is not equal in the United States, right? right. There's some really good right. private schools that are doing really well. You have some really good um, charter schools and then a few a few public schools here and there are mm-hmm. doing outstanding work for whatever reason, right? But in general, then there's a big gap. And then when you get to the underserved community, it's an even bigger gap. So exactly. poor rural, poor mm-hmm. urban. Well, what's that about, right? I mean, you know the data on the TIMS exam or the PISA, yep. the studies, you know, how, how kids are preparing across the world in math and science. And we always hear, oh, America is not doing well, 25th in math and 31 in science, et cetera, et cetera. We're behind some developing world nations. But when you unpack the data, and I know you know this, for your listeners, when you unpack that data, what we have in the U.S. is they average all the scores of all the students who do the test. When exactly. you disaggregate that and you look at the kids who are going to the top private schools or the, the top public, public schools and then the great charter school experiences, those kids are on par with the first, second, or third countries in the world. Right. But what's dragging down that number is all the public school kids who are going to more challenged schools and don't have access to resources. And that's a political economic mm-hmm. problem that we should solve in this country. Mm-hmm. It is. And so back to one of my, my original questions there, Frederick, because you set that up beautifully for us. So what, what can an institution like COSI do about that problem? Because at the end of the day, right, you know, one of the things that we're all collectively wrestling with, we we said this early on in the beginning of our conversation here, right, and we are certainly in a post-pandemic global environment, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Massive disruptions have happened on the entire planet as a result of, uh, of the pandemic. And so it presents us with an opportunity. But it's a fleeting opportunity, as you and I both know, right? And it's very, very easy to go back to what was or to what we perceive was that comfort zone, that normal. And I hear everybody's talking about all the time, we want new normal. And you know, my pushback is, God, normal wasn't working. Why the heck do we want to go back to anything even remotely looking like that? What if instead we reimagine the entire endeavor, as we talked about earlier? So what? What is the role of a COSI yeah, I mean, in making sure that we don't go back to what wasn't working in our own community, much less other parts of the world? I, I love that question. It really goes back to where we began, which is what's the role of a COSI? I'll extend that. What's the role to a science museum or science center in the U.S. or around the world? Mm-hmm. And it's to think and act beyond its bricks and mortar. And the easiest and most effective way we figure that out, because we're a nonprofit, we don't have a mm-hmm. billion dollars to, to, to spare, is with P with a, a partnership with a capital P. Mm-hmm. And you know this, we partner with you. And yep. we partner with several other organizations. And what we've realized is why COSI can't definitively, you know, make that student into an engineer, you know, two-year um, community college degree engineer or a four-year engineer or a medical student. COSI can't do it on its own. But COSI can be a hub in a spoken wheel model. And I say COSI because, you know, museums in general, science museums specifically, are like mini Switzerland. Right. Every city, wherever we are, everybody likes it. 
you know, you very rarely hear, oh, that's a fashion gym. Those people are <laughs> we're, we're a trusted brand. People know us. Parents know us. Schools mm-hmm. know us. Elected officials know us. And people like us. So we can position ourselves as a, as a hub in a spoken wheel kind of partnership ecosystem where we're connecting to the past. We're connecting to Honda. We're connecting to AEP, the energy company. We're connecting to elected officials in their communities. We're connecting to, to, of course, the public school system. And we're able to be a conduit of resources that alone COSI couldn't couldn't fulfill that whole trajectory to build. When you talk about Mm -hmm. um, professional development and when you talk about pipeline development, we can't do it on our own, but we can be that connective tissue Mm -hmm. that galvanizes all these. In fact, this is what we do here at COSI, which I'm so excited um, to galvanize these different locations, these different resources that together will carry that kiddo from kindergarten, pre-K, all the way to, if they want to do a two-year degree, four-year degree, go on to a PhD. We can be that connective tissue to make sure that happens. And that's one of our significant roles. The second significant role, highlighting your point about post-pandemic, and I love what you said. No, let's not get back to normal, because that was whack. Well, let's get somewhere else. <laughs> let it and, let it and, <laughs> and one of the cool legs up, I hope we have, is what's been made clear about this pandemic, people who are tone deaf to the importance of science, people who knew about science but didn't really care, people who kind of felt, oh, science is a thing, but weren't really vested in it. Everybody now knows how critical mm-hmm. science is. Because the only way, Annalise, I'm not preaching to you, but I'm sharing this to your audience, mm-hmm. the only way we made it out of this pandemic was because of one thing and one thing only. It was the scientific enterprise. Yep. We have vaccines. Mm-hmm. We didn't buy them from the vending machine. They didn't fall as manna from heaven, <laughs> right? Vaccines are a direct, complete, and total output of a scientific engine that asked the question, uh, sorry, found the problem, asked the question, how are they going to solve that problem, and did all these steps to get through a vaccine. That's all science. Yep. So now anybody who's born from, you know, 1900 and on, anybody's alive, they know the only reason why they're breathing oxygen today and surviving is because it's about science. So we're hoping that on top of us being that hub and spoken wheel model, that people will see why it's so important now to have this conduit, as you said, to create a pipeline for men and women, boys and girls to become men and women with all kinds of disciplines. And you've heard me say this a million times, it's not about getting a PhD. You can go to a two-year community college and get a degree in America, start at sixty-seven dollars or $80,000. You can feed your own fat. I mean, there's a lot you can do if you just understand and have those skills, tool sets that many disciplines help, but science is really one of the best, science and engineering are really one of the best disciplines to give those skills to you. Yeah, absolutely. There's no question about that at all. And, you know, the, the whole, we have to let go of one size fits all, right? And, and we have this, this false narrative, right? That one size fits all is the best way to ensure equity. And that's not the case at all. In fact, we've actually, I would argue over the last 20, 30, 40, even 50 years, proven that that's the absolute opposite of what's true in terms of trying to ensure that we provide the the, the best and highest use of an educational opportunity to an, an individual, right? Coming from a variety of circumstances, backgrounds, aspirations, needs, and wants. And so it's a, it's a difficult space to get at. So, you know, I always like to close this 
program and the conversation with, you know, asking, asking a question that gets folks really sort of thinking about what can they do in their own communities. So, so my, my question to you is not so much what the, the future holds, but if you're stepping back and looking in, you know, that, that crystal ball that I know you have sitting right on your desk, what do you see, right? What, what's the thing that that's missing, right? That we haven't talked about that we desperately need or that we have an opportunity to either build design or to attain that's going to make a difference? I, I, lo- I love that question. And I'm going to answer it. This is 100% my opinion, but I'm going to answer it this way. It is not a technology mm-hmm. and it is not a widget. It's about being open, mm-hmm. vulnerable, transparent, willing to have tough confrontational at times, but Mm -hmm. tough discussions. And most importantly, having the openness of wanting to change towards a common good. I'll say it again. Frederick Bertley believes we have all the resources to solve the problem already. We are now sending, this is Artemis Project by NASA that's sending a man and woman to the moon in 2026. Mm-hmm. We are talking about trying to send people to Mars mm-hmm. and that's gonna happen soon. Mm-hmm. If we can send people to the moon and imagine sending people to Mars and then eventually do that, and you don't think we can solve the education pipeline problem, right? The issue is we haven't as a society yet been fair at looking at the distribution of wealth, the distribution of opportunity, the haves versus the have nots, and we're not serious about it. Mm-hmm. That's, I mean, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna sugarcoat that answer. It's yeah. not a technological answer. It's not giving laptops to every kid. Oh, the poor school's got laptops. They don't work, or they're not not powered enough energy. It's, a, it's not a widget. It's a mental shift. And here's another thing I'll say. You, you want to know how to really? If, if people don't like that, do this experiment. I guarantee you'll solve the K through 12 education process. Imagine you made every elected official, okay from Canada to Kansas to Albuquerque, okay, to wherever, all 50 states, and Canada's not a state, but I'm throwing in Canada for, for my <laughs> personal reasons. If you were to make every elected official send their kid to public school, mm-hmm. not the past foundation, not the charter schools, not private schools, every from the president of the United States on down. I mean, uh, Barack Obama, my hero to this day, Michelle Obama, I don't think there's a woman I respect more than that woman. Mm-hmm. Just an amazing people. I don't care your politics. They're great people, right? All right, fine. I was bummed. I understand why they didn't do it, but I was bummed when, when President Barack and First Lady Michelle won in 2008, then they're moving to D.C. to rent in the White House, that they sent their kids to private schools, mm-hmm. right? And so imagine every elected official sent their kids to these these crumbling, decaying public schools that do what you said, you know, the, the, the curiosity gets, gets pulled out of them. Um, they don't have the resources at the school. They're not, you know, what would happen? Mm-hmm. Do that for five years. I guarantee you the toughest, most, you know, unfortunate public schools in our nation would flip and be cranking out amazing boys and girls asking all the curious questions, researching all their questions, knowing how to analyze and getting a rich robust education that will allow them to smoothly go through that pipeline and become whatever their dream is from a ballerina to a particle physicist to an engineer to a scientist to whatever. 
So that's my answer. It's not popular, but I know it'll work. It's all about making a choice, right? You know, and then just embodying you. We have this moment, right? We, 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 we have the opportunity to choose, right? And so it's on us. Uh, so I appreciate that very much. Frederick, thank you for making time in your day to come and have this conversation, share your story and your passion uh, with all of our listeners here on Learning Unboxed. Thanks for joining us today. It is my pleasure, but this is an added little moment. You don't get to get away just yet. <laughs> uh, I got to ask you one question. Oh. So given the magic wand and all the power in the world, you know, you're this amazing host of this Learning Unbox series. You know, um, just just how would you solve the pipeline problem? Whew, what a question. How would I solve the pipeline problem? Well, I would do, you know, I have multiple answers to this question, but I think that at, at the heart, to get at the heart of it, you know, one of the things that I think would be an amazing way outside of, I love all politicians should send their children to public school, right? That would, in fact, I agree with you, change things very quickly. Um, but I think that the other piece of it too is if we were to give K-12 the space and grace to say, right, that, you know, an individual teacher can change the lives of an individual child. And what would happen if the child got to stick with that teacher throughout that experience? Instead of shifting from meaningless grade level to meaningless grade level, and instead we create these cohorts of teachers and true on industry experts. You know, from a pipeline perspective, if we could get our industry partners you know, I could pick on any number of them locally and they probably wouldn't even, you know, cringe too much at me. But what if, right? So I'll just corporation XYZ so I don't get either of us in too much trouble, right? <laughs> so what if corporation XYZ said that the single greatest investment they could make into their own workforce pipeline issues was that they were going to fund their own people to spend their nine to five working hand-in-hand with a teacher and that school's not at the school building, but that that particular cohort of kids lives and breathes, works and learns, experiences apprentices and interns all at XYZ Corporation, right? Not to churn out more folks just to come there, but for folks who have a a true robust understanding. And all they're doing is industry-based R&D, right? So the moment I need to solve the problem about how to create that water bottle that can decompress the landfill in a maximum of, you know, 30 days, right? That, you know, all the math I need to understand or the physics that I need to be able to to comprehend the potential of that, we stop and we learn it in that moment because we're applying it, right? So in my mind, the answer to your question is that, you know, we need to have a very meaningful and deliberate rethinking about the opportunity of teaching and learning. I need to I need to copy that recording because that <laughs> just knocked it out the park. I love it. I think you're spot on. And I'll just add to it. That won't happen organically. Nope. That can happen politically, yep. which is why I go back to now with your how to do it, if elected officials are going through these schools, they're going to start forcing through policy, through change of regulations to say, hey, company X, Y, and Z, you have to execute this model because we have data that shows this works. Yep. But without outside pressure, 
you know, it's, it's hard, it'll happen on the one-offs, but it's hard to actualize so that, back to your point, that it's available for all. Yeah, I, I love that answer. That's fantastic. Great. Yeah. Excellent. Well, thank you again, Frederick, so much for being with us today. We appreciate it. My absolute pleasure. Great podcast. Thanks for including me. Absolutely. Thank you for joining us for Learning Unboxed, a conversation about teaching, learning, and the future of work. I want to thank my guests and encourage you all to be part of the conversation. Meet me on social media at Annalise Corbin and join me next time as we stand up, step back, and lean in to reimagine education.